Welcome to Tools for Liberty, a program designed to intrigue, to stir your nerves, and to offer your mind critical thinking and adventure. And I'm Jay Dylan Proctor. I'm Amanda Sparrow. And I'm Anthony Alegria. And also, we have in studio with us a Korg Volka Keys synthesizer. And a lot of people look at these things and they say, well, that sounds a lot like a fax machine. But in reality, they're deceptively small. It is quite a small item. And because they do sound like a fax machine, we actually will be bringing with us here in the future Korg's newest model, the Korg Volca Fax. On a serious note, our content for this week is going to be, we're going to talk about free will and love. So we're going to start you off with a couple questions just to be thinking about throughout this episode. And these questions are, does love make for a good policy in life? And do we value free will if we see our lives as controlled by outside powers such as other groups or people? All right, in our adventure today, we're going to be talking about Stranger Things. The new series of Stranger Things has come out, but also we're going to be talking a bit about Agatha Christie, J.R.R. Tolkien, and a scream. And when we say a scream, we're actually meaning the scream, the Edward Monk rendition of the scream. So we're going to be talking about all of these things today. We're not going to be discussing anything like a log in a lake. That's sort of the canary in the coal mine. Is this a boring program or not? Can people make a story about a paranormal floating log interesting or not? We'll let you decide, and we'll be back here in a moment. Stranger Things Season 2 has come out, and this is really, I know this is a fun topic, this is not one of our more serious things, but it is serious because it really causes us to ask the question, how does culture wrap around us? How do we understand what is good quality things? How do we develop role models? How do we just view our, our world around us? Culture is something that's really important, and Stranger Things is something which is really interesting. Of the, the things that have come out in recent times, whether it be movies, TV series, I think it's one of the greatest series which really pulls you into it. It's, it's really real written. It's something which really just captivates a person. And I think that's really what like the attraction to this series has been, and kind of like just this mass following that's happened around Stranger Things Season 1, and then a lot of people anticipating this new season that's just come out on um, Netflix. It's because the writers um, behind it have really just created a captivating world that not only is it pleasing to watch, but you want to kind of like join in the adventure that's happening. Yeah, the, the world is captivating. The characters are captivating. Even the people who are villains, the, the monsters, all of it is very captivating. It, it begs you to come into the story and you want to find out what's happening next. It's something where the world is so authentic and well-developed that it really pulls you in. What defines good writing? Is it obvious in the present or is this something we can only recognize in retrospect? So this is something interesting. Are we just fascinated with Stranger Things because we're here in the now and in this moment, it's a really important thing in our culture, or are we fascinated with it because it's actually pretty good? There's a lot of other series out there that people are not very interested in. Well, I think there's something about quality writing, which is obvious in the moment, and as well as being obvious in retrospect. I think there's sometimes things can transcend both. If we go back to in the past, we've talked about Plato and his, his text Ion, and the character Ion in there, which again, this is all an extension of Plato and Plato's thought, he talks about how, how good Homer is as a, a writer and as a poet, and how Homer is so good that there's more truth in his material. So I think there is something about how, in the moment, we can see things which are actually valuable. We can recognize things and say, well, that's high quality. There's a lot of evidence to, to that being good. We can see that in the moment, and of course, sometimes we don't recognize how good certain things are until we look at it in retrospect. To bring up some modern um, authors, uh, Agatha Christie and J.R.R. Tolkien are both, both very popular writers even now. Um, and an uh, interesting fact about Agatha Christie and her writing is that her books, she has sold more books than any other writer, and the only book that sold more than her writings is the Holy Bible. And I can say this, when I was bored in college, which, not that I'm advocating people to be bored in college, but when I was bored in, in college at doing my, my bachelor's at at a university here in the area, I spent a lot of time reading Agatha Christie in class. I kind of started off with some apps that had free stuff on there, and there were some that had Agatha Christie in there. And one of the things that was there, it was sort of the digital version of the writing on the back of, a, of an actual book. And someone had said that the short stories she had, they're so good because she can, she can convey the, the emotions of the human spirit better than anyone else. And I, I've looked at that. I can't exactly remember who it was who had that commentary, but I think it's more than her telling of human emotions. I think it's that she can tell an entire world of each character 
so well. She wasn't the first person to do the locked room mysteries. She wasn't the first person to take these sort of style plots, but she took them to a new level that really not many other people have been to hold a candle to hardly at all. She was able to create whole worlds for each character. In order for a locked room mystery to work, each potential suspect has to have motive. They have to be rationalized. The, the world of each character, and of course she's known a lot for, for characters such as Hercule Poirot, each suspect is fully rationalized. It makes sense for each of them to be a suspect. It's not someone who, who they really sort of think of the plot and then retroactively just put people there because they need suspects. It's something where each suspect makes sense. And she did such a good job of rationalizing the human world, even when people's motives are corrupt or where they don't have good ideas or whatnot. It makes sense to the person there, and that's what she was able to do. And also talking about uh, J.R.R. Tolkien and something that he and uh, Agatha Christie have in common is, is how well they create the world. I mean, really, if you think about J.R.R. Tolkien's writings, obviously most of us think of Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit, but he has so many more writings and even half books and short stories and, and editions and appendixes and all these kinds of things because he was interested in creating this dynamic world. And all these characters could seem believable because they lived in an actualized world. There, there was meaning and purpose behind themselves because they weren't something like they weren't a flat character that was just created for a single purpose, but they lived and breathed in this fictional world. So if I'm hearing this correctly, each life of these fictional characters made sense to them. Even if the fictional character had bad motive or ideas, their ideas would make sense to them. It was important to right. them. Well, and this is how the real world works, right? Um, if we think of our lives as a story, even someone that's a background character in our story, they themselves have a fully actualized mm -hmm. world, right? So everyone has, has motive and thought and purpose, even if it's a little distorted, maybe it's right, maybe it's wrong, but there's something that's going um, on behind the scenes, you know? And so everyone's an actualized person, and so it makes sense, and the stories that intrigue us are the ones that mimic that. Yeah, and even when you look at like Tolkien, he, he has so many languages involved in his writings, and each of those languages fully developed. He realizes if you want to make a story where there are multiple languages, where there's multiple cultures and whatnot, each one needs to be fully developed, even if it's only mentioned in passing in a slight amount. The background characters have to be fully justified, fully rationalized, and this is what makes all of this so good. And going back to the opposite character, Agatha Christie, her writing as well, all of them, the minor suspects, the, the obvious suspects, everything has to make sense because that's really how the real world works. Everybody's justified in how they view the world. They think they're justified. They may view things wrong. They may not have all the information, but it makes sense to them. And that really is what makes all of this, this writing so well. And sort of the opposite of that, the, the lesser quality writing, and what we see a lot of times in our real world is people that have this idea of a scenario. Really sitcoms to this idea that there's a situation which this is designed, and then they bring in plot devices and things to insert here. But even we see this in other things, which aren't just comedies now, where people have in their mind, well, we want this to, to look sort of like a meme. It's sort of like they've reverse engineered memes. They're like, we're going to write a TV series. We want a person of this demographic doing this, or we want this sort of identity doing this, or this role. We're going to challenge this idea. So instead of creating fully rationalized characters, it's really a reverse engineered meme. And this is something which really can affect quality when instead of deciding, deciding to, to fully develop a world to to fully develop a creation, quality can go down. It's worth noting that, that Tolkien actually viewed himself more as a creator than he was a writer. And he was somebody who was devoutly Catholic, by the way, and he said, this is us mimicking God's creation when we as writers are not writers, but we're instead people who are, who are creating. And this is something, so we can tell sometimes the, the writings that aren't going to stand the test of time simply because their characters aren't going to last beyond a specific situation or meme or idea that's going to just be here and then gone the next day. So Agatha Christie and the Lord of the Rings and all those the writings of Tolkien endure the test of time because their worlds are complete. So anybody can kind of pick them up and join in the adventure, whatever is happening, and they can um, just involve themselves in the story because it is so well developed. Um, and even the film and TV app, adaptations are captivating because their source material is so complete. Yeah, this is where where when we, we reduce things down to identity politics and we, we want to man, manipulate writing based on political agendas or, or cultural agendas. People have religious agen agendas which are completely cultural and secular, and that's something we'll get to in a little bit later. But 
whenever we, we reverse engineer memes, we reverse engineer simple ideas, instead of creating a world as the starting point, quality can really go down. We're going to come back here in a few moments and we're going to talk about free will and determinism because determinism and the logic around that can really corrupt writing and can really make its quality go down. And we're hoping that the, the newest season of Stranger Things will be good. But aside from that, good writing is rooted in, in really world creating and character creation in logical worlds. So now we're going to move into our next segment where we're going to discuss free will and determinism. And now to discuss this, we're going to look at G.K. Chesterton's material. We're going to look at his book, Orthodoxy. This is essentially the same passage we had read in our last program, the, the midweek liberty program. We looked at G.K. Chesterton and how he talked about free will, and he, he used the illustration of lunatics and, and madmen to discuss this. But this is what we're going to be looking at today. Just a little bit of backstory on who Chesterton is. He's a Catholic writer. He started off earlier in his life as an Anglican but he converted to Catholicism, but he's a very readable writer. If you're somebody looking to read some interesting short stories, some very interesting theological material, it's very readable. All of it's readable. The serious stuff, the fictional stuff, very, very readable. He uses a lot of fun illustrations, just very enjoyable. The logic is enjoyable. Just when sitting down and enjoying the life of, of G.K. Chesterton is very, very fascinating, very fun. And what is determinism? So determinism, you may have also heard it as predestination, and it is this idea, this philosophy, that every action or even inaction is determined by something else, an outside factor. So in the idea of religion, it's a deity that is determining uh, kind of the, the actions and consequences of your lives. In culture, oftentimes it is blaming outside forces such as other people or groups or cultures or philosophies. So you do what you do only because of these things, these outside forces. And in the, the emphasis is only because of these outside forces. Yeah, and Chesterton, he really sees this as being antagonistic to, to free will. He's a theologian, and he's arguing against a lot of different people who from the time were taking some of the, the Marxian worldviews, and then there were some people who were taking really some of the predeterministic Christian views. And he was saying, look, all of this is, is wrong because it mitigates free will. It's not something which which allows for, for meaning in, in reality. It's not something that allows for, for people to overcome the things in the world. So we've got a photo of, of G.K. Chesterton for you to see there. And as we discuss this conversation of determinism and free will, it's important for us to, to realize that in our world today, we still have a lot of places where there, there's religion that is just religion without God. One of the things that I think strikes me odd to this day, and even something Chesterton was realizing at the time, is that some of the most powerful religions we have in our world today are not things that even view God as being an external deity. People replace God with different things in culture, different things in politics, and it's a very dangerous thing when, when this happens. But let's go ahead and, and read G.K. Chesterton in his book, Orthodoxy. This disastrous lap in deterministic logic. Obviously, if any action, even a lunatic's, can be causeless, determinism is done for. If the chain of causation can be broken for a madman, it can be broken for a man. But my purpose is to point out something more practical. It was natural, perhaps, that a modern Marxian socialist should not know anything about free will. But it was certainly remarkable that a modern Marxian socialist should not know anything about lunatics. Alright, so what he is doing here is he's using the illustration of lunatics and madmen and the just idea of insanity to make an argument for free will. And it doesn't actually unfold the way that you would expect it to. I was really fascinated the first time I, I heard this and I read it and I was just really fascinated by it. But essentially what he's saying is if we can break the chain of causality, we can have proof of free will. If some things have meaning and other things don't, then we can have evidence that, that free will is actually in play because if it's not part of a larger plan, then it must be, again, it's just, it's not determined by anything. It's just sort of arbitrary, it's meaningless. And whenever we find evidence of meaningless things, we actually, find evidence that that will is actually being involved in in our world. So I think just to reiterate and make sure um, we're understanding it is what you're saying is the chain of causality. So basically like you putting your cup where you put your cup. If we can say, well, that was just kind of random. It just really happened. There was no external force that was forcing you to do that or, or making sure you did that. Then we can say, obviously, 
because that was random we can look at other situations and say it was random or it didn't really have like some grand meaning behind it then we can say someone has free will because not every action is determined by whatever that external force is yeah exactly if, if i can say well i did not put my cup here because somebody was telling me to put my cup here and i know not everyone can see what's going on right now with the camera and people listening to the podcast certainly can't see everything going on but if i set my cup here on the table and it has absolutely no meaning with it that also means that i can pick up the the computer in front of us and type out a paper on it i can write an essay on it and that can have meaning that can have relevance i can get online and i can do some work i can write emails and whatnot can happen and, and work can be done some things have meaning and other things don't if everything is not driven by some external cause that gives more value to the things which i am choosing to do on purpose as opposed to the things which we just sort of subconsciously do not on purpose the last thing that can be said of a lunatic is that his actions are causeless. If any human acts may be loosely called causeless, they be the, mon the minor acts of a healthy man, whistling as he walks, slashing the grass with a stick, kicking his heels, or rubbing his hands. It is the happy man who does the useless things. The sick man is not strong enough to be idle. It is exactly such careless and causeless actions that the madman could not understand. For the madman, like the determinist, generally sees too much cause in everything. This is so fascinating. As we listen to this, we oftentimes we want to say that the, the people who are insane, the people who are mad, are the people who don't have reason or cause. But in fact, Chesterton is making the argument that those are the very people who have essentially nothing but that. They see too much cause in the world around us. And if we want to see evidence for free will and meaningless actions, it's in the things that the healthy people do, like setting your cup down at a random place. Somebody who, who may be driven mad or may be a lunatic would look at that and say, oh, we, we don't put the cup in that spot because that's where the bugs are. We, we don't look at the mirror in the bathroom because that's where the, the microphones and things are hidden and there's cameras in there where people can hear us. And they, they see everything as, as some sort of conspiracy. They hear people whistling as they walk down the road. To use Chesterton's illustration, they, they think that's the call for the conspirators to come. They, they see someone wringing their hands and they think that's an, a, a call to action from their, their allies. The madman sees too much meaning in everything. Well, and I think um, as we're talking about like the madman seeing meaning in too much, I think if we take kind of determinism to its extreme end, it does it then creates madmen. Mm -hmm. um, because if, if we spend our whole lives trying to figure out what the grander meaning of, of some of these quite honestly meaningless acts are, or even our meaningful ones, and trying to say like, is this really me or is this the external force? We're going to drive ourselves crazy, and and to not find and to always feel like we're confound by this external force instead of finding freedom in choosing, I, I think is going to be what drives us insane or, or has for, for many of us in our culture. For sure. The madman is not the man who has lost his reason. The madman is the man who has lost everything except for his reason. This is such wonderful prophecy, <laughs> which I guess it wasn't so much prophecy at the time because he was seeing it in his world around him. But it's something which is prophetic in its day, but it also has a long-term and lasting. It, it's just true. So reliable this is. The, the madman is not the man that has lost reason, but it's the one that sees too much reason. We see this in our world today. People look everywhere. We hear a lot of language about oppression and privilege in our world, and they see it in everything they do. They see power. They see that there's a sort of latent purpose in everything when the, the person doing the actions may not have anything to do with it. It could just be completely random, completely without meaning. And as Chesterton points out, it's not so much that, that people have lost reason, it's that they've lost everything but it. They can't see the world for what it is. They can't have good relationships with people. They can't see that people have things of value and people have things without value. It's like there's some disabling of their ability to, to value the different things in the world around them. And this is basically referring to something we talked about last week or in a previous episode is they've lost their ability to judge. And if you can remember when we talked about judgment, is we're not saying condemnation, we're just saying the ability to evaluate and then to think about it and to make a, an appropriate response to whatever we're evaluating. And so the madman has, because he's just kind of focused on this reason, there has to be a reason why everything's happening and usually it's a negative reason, right? If somebody is out to get them, then they have lost the ability to say, you know what, that's just random or maybe it has a different reason than the reason I think it should be um and so it's lost the ability to judge and to evaluate what is good what's bad what's silly what's you know inconsequential 
and we've just kind of determined everything's bad or, or everything's good. Yeah, and this is such a huge problem. And I feel like the church has kind of been enabling this, though I'm not going to obfuscate some difference between the, the church as a whole's guilt and the individual's guilt. I'm not doing that. But there's a thing in pop Christianity where we're afraid to use the word judge. And again, it's, it's like people who understand Greek haven't separated out that kriso, the word we get for crisis from, means con condemnation. And then there's another word in Greek, krino, which essentially means we think about, we consider, and then we administer justice as is appropriate. Judgment is not empirically a bad thing. And in English, we have a word that really has two different meanings. It has the connotations of judgment, but it also can be something which is very good. We, we do a lot of things which are judging, even though a lot of times people within the church, they want to walk back. They say, oh, I went outside and I judged that it was a bit warm, so I, I changed my clothes. And they, they'll walk that back. Well, I use discernment to do that. People are very afraid of the, the language of judgment. And in doing that, we've kind of created a sort of culture within the church which, which has this pathological conclusion that we don't value things anymore. We don't value which things have a lot of meaning, which things are wonderful in life, which things are blessing. And we don't value the things which are just sort of randomly there without much relevance in the cosmos at all. And just our, our diversion away from the, the language of judgment, trying to divert it one other way instead of just being, look, judgment is condemnation in some cases, but it's also this. Without having good ways of separating these ideas, things have been taken to really a bad conclusion. Nevertheless, the madman is wrong. But if we attempt to trace his error in exact terms, we shall not find it quite so easy as we had supposed. Perhaps the nearest we can get to expressing it is to say this, that his mind moves in a perfect but narrow circle. A small circle is quite as infinite as a large circle, but though it is quite as infinite, it is not so large. In the same way, the insane explanation is quite as complete as the sane one, but it is not so large. A bullet is quite as round as the world, but it is not the world. There is such thing as a narrow universality. There is such a thing as a small and cramped eternity. You may see it in many modern religions. All right, and there's so much truth into this. It's almost impossible for us to have reasonable discourse in our culture today, whether it be about almost anything, anything at all. And this is something we can trace back to this exact logic that Chesterton is suggesting here, that, that people, their logic is a circle. It may not be a very large circle. It can be a very small enclosed universe. But because the circle is complete, because the, the insane person actually did hear somebody whistle, they actually heard people behind them talking to one another, and those people glanced at them, they, they have this sort of justification. Well, it must be conspiracy. There's enough evidence to support this, but I can attribute the motive of causality even if it's just correlating with it. And even if it's just completely meaningless, they can, they can find meaning in things which are meaningless. And it's almost impossible to dispute this when people don't have the ability to judge, when they don't have the tools for saying some things are valuable, some things are not valuable, when everything is of equal causality, when everything is of equal purpose, it lends to an almost impossible place in culture where we can have reasonable dialogue. And again, a lot of times we assume that the secular world is without religion, but a lot of these people, they have great faith in doctrines that have been handed down to them without questioning it, and they've built their entire moral structure around it without having tools for judging, without having tools for, for having discernment, and this is what happens. Now, speaking quite eternally and empirically, we must say that the strongest and, un and most unmistakable mark of madness is this combination between a logical completeness and a spiritual contraction. In other words, what we're getting here is when people have a closed system, when the, the mad person thinks that setting your cup on the edge of the table has, that's where the bugs are at, you can't put them there. When, to use Amanda's language earlier, when you, you think that the little green men are telling you to place the cup a certain place, when you're actually morally convicted about this, there's almost no room for, for getting past this. When you have some sort of worldview that says your actions are determined by something else, every action is determined by some external force. The, the reason why the people were whistling is they were conspiracy. The conspiracy determined that. The reason why you set the cup there is because the little green men told you to. When everything is driven by some external force and you're convicted by it morally, this is something which is, is a very bad place for culture to be. It's a, a very chaotic place. In the past, we've discussed how free will and personal responsibility must be downplayed in order to sell determinism. And we get this a lot of places in our world, this idea that culture collapses 
when you tell people that stuff happens because of outside forces instead of their own choices, when they can think that the cause of their, their life has nothing to do with who they are, but instead outside forces, when it's always the little green men telling you to do this, the little green men are, are giving you things or they're taking stuff away, culture collapses. And of course we're using the illustration of, of little green men, but there's so many things in life which people can attribute their life to. And even genetic things people can attribute it to. IQ, personality, a lot of these things are heavily influenced by genetics. And when you say your whole life isn't determined by environment, well, there's not much reason for you to, to fight that. There's not much reason for you to, to care about who you are as a person. Right, and we can certainly say that certain things do influence us mm -hmm. as, as people. Obviously, our, you know, our genetics and even our environment do. But to say that that's it, that, that the whole sum of our meaning and being of humanity is simply to to kind of live out this predetermined life or that every step we take the reason we succeed and fail is only because of these external factors and really like Dylan said it's not we're kind of being a little bit silly when we say the little green men but we can blame it on you know because of you know this and this or that our culture the the group um, identity or the the fact that we had this or didn't have this. And again, those things can influence us, but to say that that's the beginning and end of our existence is to alleviate our own personal choice to decide how our lives are gonna be constructed and to the best of our ability, how we're going to then change some of these bad situations that we may have been born into. Exactly right, well stated. And we're gonna take a segment break and then we'll be back. discussing a bit the edge of chaos. Honestly, I don't have all the answers for everything in life, but I know when people buy too much in determinism, people have done it in the church, people do it in the secular world, people are very willing to buy into determinism. But it takes us to the place of chaos. And we as individuals have to own personal responsibility in our lives. We have to, to embrace free will if we're going to combat this, because our culture is unmistakably a place that is near the edge of chaos right now. And so we're going to talk a little bit about art because art is something which is so important to, to how we understand the world. It's how we, it's sort of like a, a sign, it's a marker denoting where culture is at to an extent. So a few things I'd like to share. When I was in undergraduate studies, I, I took fine arts. I know a lot of people have managed to get out of taking fine arts and a lot of, of people don't enjoy it. And I'm actually one of the few people who actually was sincerely moved, I would say, and I'm not a very emotional person, but I, I did learn a lot in fine arts, and I had this with Paul Christensen at Trevecca Nazarene University. There I can throw Paul Christensen in a plug. I really enjoyed his class, and he's the one who really introduced me to things like Impressionism and the Impressionistic music movement, which is a little bit different than what happened with the visual arts. And when I was in this class, he, he was showing us some stuff, and there was Maurice Ravel's Mother Goose series of music that he had put together, because the man he liked to, to read to, to children. And I listened to this and I thought, this is actually really good. Up to this point in my life, I had hated stuff which could be classified as, as classical music. And what you actually just heard during the segment break was the, the Korg Volker Keys rather crude rendition of, of Claude Debussy's Reverie. But as we, we listen to this sort of things, there was a time when art moved to the edge of chaos. This was the time before World War One, and this really was a place where we, we can learn from history by saying what happens when things go to the edge of chaos and people as a culture and as individuals are not able to rein things back in. So I just want us to look a little bit about the movement of getting close to the edge of chaos. Again, if we go back to Tolkien and Agatha Christie, their stories of how people conquered the edge of chaos and reined things back in. But let's look at some, some examples from life, other forms of, of art, and how this all comes together. We have, like you said, so Impressionism was a movement that happened um, in the late 1800s, mid to late 1800s, and it begins to kind of uh, reveal this world that's at the edge of chaos in the 1900s, and then eventually it will kind of culminate in World War, and then we'll move to World War II and the Cold War and other such things. But it happens because the world is, in, is on this edge, and it does not have the, the discipline to pull itself back out. Impressionism was an art movement, and it sought to move to the edges of objective standards. Artists like Manet 
not to be confused with Monet, but Monet was uh, one of the beginners of the, and part of the early stages of Impressionism. Both of these are paintings from Manet. So we clearly see in this a connection still to reality. In this art, there's a connection to truth. Um, and as we, we, we talked about beauty in past episodes, beauty is this interpretation of truth. It's not simply an aesthetic. And so as we look at these paintings and these pictures or pictures of these paintings, we still see this connection with truth, but we're moving away from order. There's something slightly different or off kilter about these paintings, and yet they're still beautiful and aesthetically pleasing. Later in the Impressionist movement, we kind of get to the, the um, post-Impressionist, and we see Vincent van Gogh, who's kind of, he's kind of well-known or most well-known of, of this movement. Um, and he took things just slightly further. And we can see in uh, Starry Night, which is my personal favorite piece of art. Um, I have a print of it, and then also my husband painted me a picture of, of uh, Van Gogh's Starry Night. And it's this famous piece, and I think the reason it's so, so famous and people love it so much is it is visually aesthetically beautiful, and it's powerful. There, you can look at it, and you know it's a still painting, but there seems to be a movement in it that invites you to participate in this edge of chaos. Um, and it is, there's a slightly chaotic interpretation of a starry night, but it's still connected. You know that this is a, you know, a, a scenescape of, of a night sky, but it's not simply just black and yellow. It's not simply a blue sky. There, there's movement to it. There's beauty to it. There's, there's something that's happening in this painting. And it even, I think, reveals just the human mind of how our mind interprets the, the, the things that we see. But again, it, it's clear of these connections to truth, but also this explore, exploration of the edge of chaos. And we can really see with the, the Van Gogh, the Manet, the different paintings, although these are on the peripherals of truth, there's still clearly and distinctly a connection to reality. You look at Starry Night, or you look at the self-portrait of, of Van Gogh, and you can tell this is clearly a human being. It's, it's so well representative of a particular human being that you could look at that painting and you could go out and in a group of people tell who that is. But at the same time, you can tell from the background, you can tell from the stroke work, it is something which is pushing the border towards the peripherals of truth. It's going towards the edge of chaos. So then we have, even after Van Gogh, we are going to look at um, a different artist, Edvard M Monk. And he, was, he produced the work that you see now that's the scream. Um, he was producing work which incorporated ideas such as expressionism. There was the influence of impressionism, but art was moving closer and closer into this edge of chaos. And to be honest, the edge of chaos can be fun. It, it produces intriguing works of art. It produces intriguing writings, like we talked about with Tolkien and Agatha Christie, um, because there's, there's something adventurous about being at this edge. And there's actually four versions of the screen that, that Monk put out, and they are done, some of them on crayon on cardboard. And I'm not making a joke when I say that they're actually crayon on cardboard, some of these are. But even if you look at the eyes of the character there in the, in, maybe you could say figure, we're not exactly sure who or what this is, but it's, it's clearly a human form, even though it's a little bit bizarre. The, the movements are, are a bit off. There's not necessarily the, the natural bone structure which we would expect, but it still follows what we understand to be the, the general abstract human form, but it's moved very close to the edge of chaos. It's a lot further away from the truth than something like the Monet paintings, and it's even further away from truth as what you see with Van Gogh's self-portraits and even how he painted landscape and, and whatnot. It's, it's moving towards the edge of chaos. And why this is so important is because the world was moving towards the edge of chaos during this time. If we look at what was going on in Europe, what was going on in Russia, both East and Western Europe, there was a movement towards the edge of chaos in a lot of cultures. And the arts really foreshadow how a culture moves towards the edge of chaos. So how we, we do things in society when we're producing good writings, you can tell that, that culture is really healthy when quality work is coming out of people. When you have people who are saying, we're going to create whole worlds, you can tell that the world is in a very stable place. And one of the reasons why we bring all this up, again, we look at Hollywood today, and there's not a lot of really good products coming out of that. There's not a lot of good moral lessons coming out of that. It's moved so far beyond the peripheral of chaos, the behavior of a lot of these people has just gone off the edge and just completely 
immoral behavior, but as we watch the art, we can see what it looks like when the world goes to the edge of chaos and when culture goes to the edge of chaos. And something that happens usually in, in, a, in a movie or a story, particularly when we're watching these people explore and, and kind of this adventure and this movement towards the edge of chaos, is that usually the story does not end there. Or even if the story ends there, it calls for a movement for the, the reader or the watcher, or the audience, to then move themselves, to have learned the lesson to move themselves outside of the edge of chaos. And so it's fun and it's intriguing um, because it's not easy because there's something there is an event there's a movement that is happening and it invites us to do that and again it's not just simply to go into chaos and to stay there but then to learn how to conquer it and conquering the edge of chaos is is fun we as a species love stories about conquering the edge of chaos as well as stories which teach us how to talk conquer the edge of chaos a lot of our, our modern writings, a lot of things which have stood the test of time, are people who are conquering chaos in their lives. They're conquering some sort of, of antagonistic thing. And as we come to, to examine all of this, we, we really do find people conquering the edge of chaos. But even in other stories, such as fairy tales and, and the various things that we see, which seem to have a negative ending, which aren't very good, they do call on the, the reader, the viewer, the, the child listening to the story to rise up and to, to learn a tool from that story which can keep them from, from being trapped by chaos. That they can then in their own lives go out and do something about it. We see the gospel of, of Mark even ends in this way where it sort of ends on this moment where there's a calling on people to have a discussion on it afterwards. There is a, a call to, to conquer chaos after hearing the story. So some stories have the whole world closed inside of it. And other stories, like Amanda said, they give you the tool and the, the reader, the viewer, the one who has received the story, then has to do something in their own life where they conquer chaos. So though we, can, we enjoy these stories or these paintings or even music that kind of takes us there, um, it seems as we look at humanity, we don't do a great job of then navigating once we're in that edge of chaos. Um, and again, as we look at these pieces of art, whether it is a painting or music or, or writing, is what makes them stand out is that the people are conquering the edge of chaos. They're not left in this situation where we find them. And determinism doesn't give people the, the tools to conquer the edge of chaos. It doesn't give people the tools to have personal responsibility that says we can overcome it. So we're going to take a break and we'll be back here in a moment. We're going to be talking about what it means to be born again and, and how love should be incorporated into our lives. All right, now we're going to be talking about what it means to be born again and also what it means to have a, a policy and understanding of love in life. There's a lot of people in pop culture. I remember when I was in high school, they would have bumper stickers and things which just said like the word love on it. And it's something where a lot of people really have an underdeveloped understanding of what all this means. So we're going to tie this conversation together. This is really our last main serious segment. We're going to do a wrap up here in a little while. But let's talk about what it means to have an understanding of love. Let's start by going back to the earlier question. Is love naturally reciprocated? So if you're uh, kind of understanding of Jesus or Christianity, even just kind of a basic one, you understand that one of Jesus's main topics, his big commandment, was that we love one another. But this is important to articulate. He didn't just say to go out and love in sort of this ambiguous term. He specifically said love one another. And that's a little bit different. And it's not this idea that your love is just this, this group which excludes people. But it was this idea that you would be reciprocating back love when people loved you. That you would give something back. And so this commandment to love one another really takes the idea of love to the next level. Because love itself is not necessarily guaranteed to be returned or reciprocated. And we see a lot of people in our world that say we want a policy of love. It's one of these things where it's like, well, what does that even mean? Because when we love people, it doesn't guarantee that they're going to have a change of heart. Love is not something which you force upon people. You can't force people to love. You can't force people to have freedom. If you do these things, then it's not actually love. It's not actually freedom. Love is something which is not naturally reciprocated. It's not an inherently two-way street sort of thing. It's not inherently multilateral. There are times when parents love their children, and the children, when they become adults, they may hate their parents. There are children who, as, as young individuals, they may love their parents, and their parents neglect them. They don't love them. We see this with, with friends, where we see people who are 
who are really compassionate to lend somebody a hand and the other person is just taking advantage of the other person. Love is not something which is naturally reciprocal. It's something where, where it takes effort for it to, to, be, to, ba- to be balanced between the, the different parties. So Jesus commands his disciples, the church, to love as he is loved. So how did Christ love? It was this love that moved people towards transformation. It met people where they were in the middle or in, at the edge of chaos and said, um, there's going to be transformation. There's going to be movement out of the chaos. You're not going to be left there. This opportunity has now been created where you're no longer stuck where you were or how your external factors uh, determined you to be or you thought determined you to be, but now you can move uh, towards peace. And this is something where it, it moves towards a place where people can have internal change. This is the idea of a free will, that there can actually be an internal change that matters. If you live in a world where there's only deterministic, the environment is the only thing that matters, and again, operative word there being the only thing that matters. Environments are important, and they definitely play a role. But if you're purely determined by your environment, then your free will doesn't matter. An internal change doesn't matter. But Christ does not suggest this. Instead, he suggests that an internal change does matter, and it's of the utmost importance that people have this internal change. If we are people who maintain free will, how do we battle the deterministic mentality? G.K. Chesterton makes a good argument about why it is so hard to battle. It is hard to battle when people's logic is closed. And the great irony in all this, and Chesterton even suggests all these modern religions, there are a lot of people in our world, there are even wings of Christianity, but there's a lot of places in the secular world where they do have a god. It's just not a divine one. People make government god. People make things in culture god. And they have these doctrines which they hold to, and they have this, this worldview where they don't have tools for valuing things. They don't have the ability to judge. And they have some sort of internal rationality. And when you don't have anything but that, it's almost impossible to overcome it. When people sincerely believe and are convicted to believe, they believe it's a moral thing that they are entirely determined by their outside environment, it can be very difficult to deal with this. But if we're people who believe that people can be born again and teaching that people can be born again is a way that we combat this, teach people that their, their fleshly birth is not all that matters. Now, if we look to the, to the New Testament, we see the language of, of fleshly birth and the idea of spiritual birth. I think this is a place where we've, we've over-categorized and we've over-segmented stuff out and we've lost its practicality. We sort of develop what it means to have, be spiritually born, even though we've segmented this off to be something which is different than your actual being. And we've taken fleshly birth to be something which is more carnal and uses language of, of certain connotations. And we forgot what this means is, is your environment, your environmental birth, your, your practical birth, but you have no control over the circumstances you're born into. Those things are no longer who is going to define you. You can be liberated from your birth environment, your environment, which does play a difference, but you can be freed from that. It doesn't have to define exactly who you are. You can be born again and freed from determinism. Right. So, I, again, it, it's very practical. It's not just kind of a spiritual abstract about being born again. Is It literally, completely, utterly changes uh, your kind of life end, that it no longer has to be constructed or confined by these other factors. And if we're to combat determinism in our world, which, again, it's quite prevalent, we have to pull things away from the edge of chaos. We have to teach people that you can be born again, that the environment around you doesn't have to control and dictate who you are. You can be freed from that. But in order to do that, you're going to have to have internal change. You can't stay there and be inside the, the small, closed circle and expect the world to change. Culture goes to the edge of chaos, and determinism is a tool for taking us over the edge. Can being born again help us out with this? So this is where we come to where we really have to understand again what it means to be born again and what it means when Christ loves us and creates this opportunity for us to be transformed. We definitely have to take the personal initiative to say that I'm going to be responsible for my actions and in that responsibility I'm going to choose to love like Christ loved. However, if we think that it is only in our personal responsibility that somehow we're going to win an argument against those who believe in determinism, we're going to find, like we've talked about earlier, it's really only, it's kind of impossible to argue with these people because they've, they've already determined you're wrong. They've created their little closed circle and anything outside of it is wrong. And so we're not going to win arguments in our own power. But when we trust in the love and the grace of our God, when we allow ourselves through our own personal initiative, but when we allow and give ourselves over to God to transform us, so that we can be a means of grace in this world, we are going to find that real change can happen, not just individually in ourselves, but also in our community, in our culture, and in our world.
And that's very powerful to say. And we'll be back here in a moment to wrap things up. Alright, so let's wrap all of this program up. The Edge of Chaos can be a lot of fun. It can be a, an enormous amount of fun. It can be very aesthetically pleasing to be there. We love stories about the, the Edge of Chaos. We love stories which give us tools how to combat the Edge of Chaos. But it's something that people are not necessarily very disciplined to do. We're not good at maintaining the freedom and the responsibility that's needed to, to really overcome determinism and the things which, which keep us out of, out of the, the depths of, of eternal chaos. We must be capable of overcoming chaos and the edge of it by having discipline, by, by teaching people what it means to, to have a better way of thinking. And one of the things that had been proposed to us earlier was this idea of, well, I'll just let Anthony explain it. He's gonna do a better job of it than myself. I noticed that uh, about determinism, this mentality of predestiny is, it's really a, it seems to be anyways, a desperate and slothful attempt to grasp order you know like they're not gonna have to do any work to get it it's already been given to them you know it's something that should it's pre-existing that order exists without our work and um you know i wanted to i was wondering whether or not this would be something that would really help out the argument you know against it right i do think there is there's a lot of truth to this this idea that people they they go to the edge of chaos but they don't like being there so they they take the deterministic worldview to say well this is why we're here because we can mitigate personal responsibility and this is something which bears out to be quite true a lot of times in history we see people are much more willing to to give up their freedom to give up personal responsibility for the sake of of a crude order a lot of times this takes the form of tyranny and when people again you look at most of human history there's a very small window of times where people are free it's just remarkably true if we look at the history of the people of God, the first thing that happens, they get liberated from Egypt, and the moments they cross the Red Sea, they're ready to be handed over back to Egypt. They, they regret coming across there. They realize they're going to die in the desert. They don't like the freedom. They don't like the responsibility of figuring out how to fend for yourself. We like stories about living at the edge of chaos, but we're not very good at, at actually applying this in the world around us. And we see this all the time, people offering themselves up to tyranny, just as an easy way to, to avoid the edge of chaos. And we see this to pick another story from uh, the history of Israel is when they finally get into the promised land, right? And, and they're living in there and they're realizing there's all these different forces against them and God is helping them again and again and again. And finally they go to Samuel, who's the last kind of judge in the area, and he's, they say, give us a king, right? And the people of Israel, their whole entire purpose, that God has called them out of Egypt, that, that called Abraham out of his homeland and says, I'm going to bless you so you can bless others. I'm going to give you life so you can be life-giving to other to the world. And they've decided that at this point in Israel's history, that's too complicated. That's a little too hard. And so we're going to, we need a king. We need a leader. And we're going to give all responsibility to him. And he's going to create the structures and the systems and the armies and, and the resources that's going to be this means of blessing. And we see that even in our world today, again, it gets complicated. It gets hard. It is difficult. To say, you know what, we're going to create opportunities for change, for life to happen. And because it gets so hard, it is, it's much easier to just say, well, I'm going to give it to this other power. Whether that other power is some kind of abstract deity, or maybe it's a government or an agency. We said they're going to be in charge because it's too difficult for me. And this is the utter opposite of what the call of the kingdom, the kingdom of God is, right? Because the call of the kingdom of God says, no, you're going to be you individually and then as you gather as a community of faith you are going to be the means of change not somebody else not some other organization but you and again this whole idea of determinism it is easier but it's also a lot closer to hell it's much closer to hell than the alternative where people do take personal responsibility and say when culture goes to the edge of chaos which it is very easy for it to do look at most of human history the, the human history spends a lot of time at the edge of chaos and in chaos. But we as individuals, we can do something about it. We can, we can take the difficult road where we say we're not just going to offer this power up to someone else. We're not going to say another group is responsible for things. We're not going to say that we're purely determined by environment, but we're going to allow the, the grace of God and we're going to allow 
the the transforming love of Christ, which again, it moves people towards transformation, and we can use the medium of our free will to receive that. When all of this happens, we can help reign in culture and pull things back away from the brink of destruction. Well, I hope you've enjoyed our episode today. You can follow me. I'm now on Twitter. We're just now putting all of this together. You can follow me on Twitter at J Dylan Proctor. And of course, Dylan is spelled D-Y-L-A-N and then just the letter J in front of that with Proctor at the end, J Dylan Proctor. But you can also follow Amanda on Twitter. I cannot remember my handle right now, but I, I will do that for next time so you can follow me. Very good. <laughs> um, I, it's something where I, I don't know. Obviously, Amanda's not very involved in it either. No. It's it's bizarre. I've never spent a lot of time on this, but I realize there is there is opportunity out there. But, of course, you can also find us on YouTube. If you go to YouTube and you search for Kingdom of the Logos, that's where you can find our, our videos. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel. We're trying to, to build our subscription so that we can have a few extra tools. You can really help us out. If you enjoy the program, you enjoy the material, please subscribe to our, our channel. Please send by word of mouth or, or links to other people. Please just share our material, and that will help us out tremendously. And, of course, you can also find us on SoundCloud and a few other podcasting places and on Facebook at facebook.com slash kingdomofthelogos. And with that, I hope you have a blessed day.